Hello, and thanks for joining us for another episode of The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, where each episode we bring you a fresh and insightful interview featuring one of the film industry's top directors, conducted by one of their peers. You can subscribe to our podcast on Google Play Music, iTunes, Stitcher, or on our SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com slash the director's cut. And if you're enjoying the director's cut, please take a moment to like, share, or comment. We love hearing your feedback. This episode takes us behind the scenes of director Sean Baker's latest film, The Florida Project. Set in a downtrodden hotel complex on the outskirts of Disney World, the film tracks one summer in the life of the precocious six-year-old Mooney, who finds mischief and adventure with her playmates as they spend their days nearly unfettered by adult supervision. In addition to The Florida Project, Mr. Baker's credits include the feature films Tangerine, Starlet, Prince of Broadway, Takeout, and Four Letter Words. The movie for television Fur on the Asphalt, The Greg the Bunny Reunion Show, and episodes of the television series Warren the Ape and Greg the Bunny. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in New York, Mr. Baker spoke with director Paul Schrader about filming The Florida Project. During their conversation, Mr. Baker speaks about the influence The Little Rascals had on the tone of the movie, the importance of casting children actually from the Orlando and Kissimmee, Florida area, and the unique challenge he faced while combining first-time actors with kids and 35-millimeter film. I just wanted to say a couple things, and I have some questions I wanted to ask him. Uh, they'll mostly kind of be director kind of questions. But, you know, this film, Florida Project, which is really amazing, is part of a larger trend that I've been, I first noticed about four or five years ago. And I think I, I called it at that time the, exha the exhaustion of narrative. Because we see so much plot, so much narrative in our lives, and I, I know, hour upon hour upon hour, that we're growing tired of it. And so we're much more open now to things that amble and that are anecdotal because they feel more real. We're so tired of seeing those rusty gears of the three-act structure crank, and you start to say, oh, okay, rising action, falling action, boom, boom, boom. You know, Robert McKee has done none of us any favors. And, uh, and so that, uh, so you saw it with Dunkirk, uh, which is a, a big historical action piece, but it's done anecdotally. And you saw it with Detroit, which is, you know, meanders. And uh, you see it here. And I, I think that uh, people, audiences, uh, find this more interesting than that heavy plotted stuff that we used to have 25 years ago. Uh, I don't know if you agree with that, but... Uh, uh, well, read Twitter. I don't know <laughs> if that's exactly true. First off, I just want to say, Paul, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, you've been an inspiration and an influence on my entire career, so thank you. Um, I um, yeah, Regarding that, uh, you know, my, my, my co-screenwriter, Chris Bragash, uh, actually comes from... Our sensibilities are, are are slightly different. I mean, he really actually is very structured in his writing. He actually likes the three-act structure. Um, I come from the other side of the spectrum where I can 
have a you know a 10 minute uh, Tarkovsky you know uh, tracking shot that I'm uh, I'm intrigued by so um, you know we we sort of meet somewhere in the middle and and regarding that the, the I, I with this film in particular we kept saying uh, we've written three films together uh, Starlet Tangerine and this film and I, I kept saying you know I really want this one if there is a plot I want it to be disguised I want it to be buried I want our three act structures uh, the three act structure uh, to be for the lines to be blurred so it really would be almost hard to figure out if where where the second and third act begin um, and make this film more about character. It was really, it was really, we wanted to spend, we wanted the audience to spend the summer with these children. And if you think about your summers of, of your youth, it wasn't exactly, you know, plot driven. There wasn't a three act structure to your, to your summer. And, and so that's how we approached it. Now we did, we did actually take some precautions by, writing scenes that didn't make it into the final film, but we did it just out of safety's sake. We actually had scenes that had more exposition that actually did focus on uh, just the adults, uh, especially the ending. It was much more procedural in the script, knowing that that could come out, uh, if, if, if hoping that it could come out, but, but shooting it for safety's sake. Um, and in the end, yes, we did remove a lot of that stuff and, and put what you might call extraneous scenes back in. For example, uh, them, the kids dancing on the bed. That's not exactly something that moves the plot forward or the story forward, but hopefully what it does is that... Also, so many things, the, the pedophile and the birds. Right. You right. know, you, you just keep telling the audience, you know, uh, here's, the, here's a traditional plot point. Here's a pedophile who's, who's creeping on these kids, yes. and we're never going to see him again. Right. Right, sort of like, or, or or did you, or did he come back in some version? No, no, oh, no, no. Good, thank God. That was a, that was a, yeah, just almost like a vignettes to a certain degree, and and um, and some people do have an issue with that, uh, but but for me, I I feel ultimately it's about connecting with these characters and having spent real time with them, and not having every scene about exposition, etc. Yeah, I mean, uh, I read an interview with you, and you know. The act of creation, you, you, when, when two things hit, you know, when they spark off each other, and often they're uh, opposites. And uh, and one thing that was going on here was was direct cinema. This whole idea of just uh, direct cinema was the original name for cinema verite, this kind of documentary realism. And then the other, as uh, Sean has said, is the Little Rascals tradition. Which is entirely an anti, a sort of anti-documentary tradition, and putting the two together then was the spark that makes this film feel so original and fresh. Uh, let me just ask them some questions. Um, so, uh, Raul Cotard was the first two words that came to our mind while watching this. You know who Raul Cotard is? Uh, this is this is contempt. Godard cinematographer. Oh, oh yes, of course. Okay, sorry. With the bright, bright yes. colors. Yes. yes. Bang, bang. Yes. You know, this is a, this is really like a Raoul Coutard kind of palette. Um, and I know that you chose to shoot in film. Was that the reason? The colors. Um, it wasn't exactly. No, it wasn't exactly the reason. It was. Uh, it, it, it also it was the organic nature of of, of celluloid. I, I wanted to 
hopefully the audience was feeling and, and breathing in that that area of Florida. You know, the 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 asphalt of the of the parking lot, and then you know the the the, the lush green cow pastures that are right behind the motel. I felt like uh, film would help us uh, capture that because it's an organic thing where where the the photochemical process of capturing it on on on, on, an, on a material item now the th but also also um there's a sense of nostalgia with film and i hate to say that because that 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 in a way says that film is a thing of the past but but um there is that we do associate uh the look of film with uh films that we've seen in in our childhood or you know in the past and and this whole film is about nostalgia it's about in a way, thinking about our own childhood, so um, so that was another reason. There's the preservation reason. There's there's keeping film alive. There's there are many reasons. Um, but I, I personally don't agree. I, I I'm glad to be rid of film. Uh, but that is uh, speaking of which, how many hours a day could you work those kids? Um, we had okay. So uh, it was my my acting coach is here, and I believe it was at eight eight that we could use with Mooney. She was on set for 10, but you could only shoot for six, but be on set for eight. And then Valeria, who was five years old, and four hours, and we couldn't get a body double with her because of that red hair. So yes, uh, we had limited hours, um, and it really did, that was the biggest time did, constraint. Did you always work a full day, or did you start working shorter days? Always a full day, but... Uh, it wasn't, we didn't push, what, 12 hours? Never pushed 12. Yeah. And of course, obviously, if you were shooting digital, it'd be a lot better for those kids because you're never going to run out of film. Um, <laughs> in a way, but it also, that discipline that people talk about, that film brings to a film set, um, that even applied to the children. I mean, we, we said, you hear that? You know, hear, hear, the, hear the film going through the, the shutter there? That's, that's, that's money burning, guys. Let's, let's, let's get, <laughs> come on, no distractions. And I think actually that helped in many ways, um, the discipline part of it. Yeah. Now, uh, this film and the previous one, Tangerine, uh, most striking for this extraordinary sense of casting. Um, you know, um, you know, w w Willem is in this film as a sort of token representative of the acting community. <laughs> but um, how, lo how long does it take to find these kind of people and how do you vet them and when do you know that's that? Well, you know, casting I think is one of the most important things, if not the most important thing for a film like this, and that that's character driven. And we, and I said with this film, we are not going to make this film and production better be prepared not to move forward unless we find our present day Spanky McFarlane. I mean, I really was looking for today's Spanky and uh, it took a while to find Brooklyn. Uh, she was, um, Brooklyn Prince is her name and she, she was a local hire. I wanted the kids to be from the Orlando Kissimmee area. It was important for me. Um, for their accents and um, et cetera. I just really felt like we should be casting the kids locally um, so they could go home at night as well and feel comfortable in their environment. And um, so she was in the database of a, of a local casting company. She had done some commercials. She had uh, done one small indie. Um, and you know what? I, I honestly throw her in the same camp as Mickey Rooney, uh, 
Jodie Foster, I really do feel as if she under she's a born thespian. Like now, I really now, do. Now, how large a net did you have to throw? We reached. Uh, I, I really a couple hundred, perhaps. Um, we we um, we put out the word to couple counties that we were looking for children. They did not have to have prior experience. We were looking really for personas. Um, and so we, uh, and then uh, of course I was also doing my street casting at the same time. I was closer to production. I was living down there. So I was going through Walmart. I was going through Target and that's where I found Valeria. I saw this little girl with red, striking red hair and I, and I went up to her mother and I said, we're holding auditions. Um, please have her come in. She came in. She 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 really impressed us. Uh, we we went we went ahead with uh, casting her, and she turned out to be five years old, which cut two hours off our day. But she was worth it. You know, we made production adjust to that. And um, Bria, casting from Instagram. I know that's a weird thing, but uh, I've used social media in the past with Tangerine. Uh, using Vine and and, and YouTube to find cast. Yeah, I and did a film with you. Cast it. You know that website. Oh yes, yeah, 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 yeah exactly. I did a film with Brett Ellis called Canyons. Yeah. We cast that on you. Cast it. Yeah, there's diff there's a whole there's a whole new world, a whole new way of casting these days. Um, and uh, so Bria, you know, we we found her on Instagram. My financiers allowed me to take this risk um, and roll the dice. And um, she was she was green yet enthusiastic and very motivated. She came down a month early and also worked with uh, my acting coach, Samantha Kwan. Um, and we, uh, she got to that place where she, I believe she was holding her own with Willem by the second weekend. And so I'm just so proud of her. Mella came from, Mella who plays Ashley in the film, came from um, a short film called Gang that I saw on Vimeo, which I you know, thought she was amazing in. A very different character. She has quite a range. And then there are, of course, the conventional ways of casting. And that's how Willem came into this uh, picture. That's how Caleb Landry Jones came to us through the agencies. Yeah, the, I, I ran, um, Willem's a friend, and I ran into him after he had done your film. I said, I, I said, how'd it go? He said, ah, oh, kids, you know, that, that, that director, he thought that, he, you know, it would be all right, but, you know, kids, you never know what to expect. And then I ran into him like four, six months later, and he had seen the film. Wow, that film was terrific. <laughs> but, yeah, it was but, but 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 his, I guess his patience was worn pretty thin. Oh well, but I have to say though, the kindest, gentlest guy who actually um, was so incredibly patient and adventurous. I was surrounding him with six-year-olds. I was surrounding him with new newcomer, new first timers, and and he was he never. I, not one time did I see him um, lose his patience. He he actually helped Bria in many ways, and I just found that out recently talking to Bria. She she told me that he was very uh, supportive, and not in a lecturing way. He gave her advice of just just encouraging her and giving her. Uh, I think um, she was quite intimidated, but um, she he just uh, made it easy for her. Yeah. Now, just staying with the kids for a second. Now, there's a lot of stuff in the film that is not repeatable. There's no take two on it. Yeah. Uh, how, how do you get them to sort of do that kind of magical stuff? And Because you know that the next time you ask them to do it, it's not going to be the same. Um, well, well, of course, there's the end. You know, uh, I did not rehearse that crying scene. Uh, we didn't want to if she 
got it all out in rehearsal and it didn't happen again while we were rolling, it would have been, you know, I would have been kicking myself for all time. So that one, we did, we, we talked a lot about it. Her mother is also an acting coach. She came prepared that day and really uh, blew us all away. Um, but regarding other scenes, um, you know, I'm my, I'm, I edit my own films, so I was always seeing, you know, if I, what was repeatable and what wasn't, and I and I knew the kids well enough, and Samantha knew the kids well enough, where we 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 could take chances certain times. I mean, for example, I mean sometimes, I mean, but also I have to say these kids are also really skilled, and they were they were attentive, and they were they were they were there, they were in the moment. And um, for example, the rainbow, you know, the rainbow, we had scripted it to be, we actually scripted a rainbow. Um, the kids were supposed to have seen the cows and then look up and see a rainbow. We're gonna have a CGI rainbow where they chase the rainbow through the field. Then two weeks, well, two weeks earlier, we were shooting at the Magic Castle. Suddenly everybody goes, there's a real rainbow over the motel. And I said, oh, yeah, if we shot that, it would save the, save the production 50 grand. Ah, <laughs> get the camera down there. And you know, of course, you know, it's a 35 millimeter camera. It had to, it took seven whole minutes to get it down there. And when we did, we had moments to capture it because it was fading. And those little two girls, those two little girls knew what to do. They, they just jumped right into that little talk about the leprechaun and ran off into the parking lot. So it was just, there's also happy accidents. There's also uh, moments of, 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 of desperate improvisation in front of and behind the camera that, you know, that's just, way I like to work sometimes, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> now, uh, moving on to production design, uh, uh, I noticed on the credits that that was actually called the Magic Castle. How much of uh, those buildings are production design? The exterior is very little. I mean, we... Well, I mean, you painted it, obviously. No. It was, it was lavender? Oh, yes. No, all of Route 192 <laughs> looks this way because it's targeting the same tourists that hit the parks. And at one time, they were flourishing small businesses. And now, you know, they got hit by the recession in 08, and now a tourist hotel turned into a welfare motel. So, um, but they I, were... Because I, I, I assume that Willem said it cost $20,000 to paint it. I figure that was your, your sort of comment on production cost. That was a line of dialogue we wrote in there knowing that the audit, that somebody might ask that question. <laughs> <laughs> and and the... Um, we were also commenting on the fact... The orange one? The, 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 oh, the orange world. Yeah. If anything, one. that's the most iconic location. It's been around for 40 years, I believe, and it's right on that strip. Wow. And uh, no, because I, I just assumed that... Uh, well, you, you, you had to paint a lot, though. We, we uh, paid them. No, paint. Paint. Oh, no. Oh, no, no. If anything, I was looking for, I, if I found a, actually, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't they do a paint job just before we came? And I was very upset. I wanted a little bit grungier, but it was still lavender. I'm talking about the, the, the castle. Um, I think once we told the owner of the Magic Castle that we were interested in shooting there, he wanted to spruce it up <laughs> and actually uh, and did a, re, you know, a new paint job, although it, it still it was the same color, if anything, just you know, aged a little bit. Um, and uh, you know, we were shooting at a time, we were shooting during a transitional period. I mean, there's a beautification process going on by the local government. I mean, right now, those, those, uh, those condos, that the abandoned condos that the kids went into are no longer there. In the last year, they've been knocked down. Um, they're trying to 
get this blighted area back to what it was uh, before 08. And one last question before I turn it over. Um, I, did you get permission from Disney World before or after you shot there? Um, or you never did? Never did. <laughs> no, I, it's, it's, it, you know, it falls under fair use, and um, we, we had to shoot that clandestinely, obviously, uh, shooting on the iPhone. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, a for the technical, uh, for people who are interested in the technical stuff, we did transfer that iPhone footage to film and back again. So we have a 35-millimeter print of iPhone footage. And, and uh, so, did you bother to ask Disney, or you just? Um, uh, there were there was too much, too many. It's too. <laughs> we consulted the same lawyers uh, that worked on uh, Escape from Tomorrow, and um, and and we were exploring many different ways of shooting it. And when it came down to it, we all agreed that this was the way to do it. Um, Ultimately, you know, uh, we're not being disparaging towards Disney World uh, or the Disney Corporation, and we're not pointing fingers. Um, and I think that that's important to, to point out. Um, okay. Uh, I, I can ask some questions, but I'd like to open it up to you. You know, I, I, my, my, my close team, you know, my... Samantha, my director of photography, Alexis Abe, my writer, we, my producers, they understood, they, they were with me with my previous films. You know, they, they, they understood that I was, I was still trying to always keep it loose enough, you know, 70% going into a day where we were 70% structured and then 30% was left up to the film gods to give us happy accidents. So, so yes, we would we would have uh, a stand-in, but we still tried to keep it loose. It's hard to exactly to say how this happened, but you know, we uh, we tried to keep our, our our crew small enough where we weren't a big presence that would suddenly bring artifice to to the uh, uh, to 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 the scene that we were shooting. Um, but to tell you the truth, I was quite frustrated. You know, it was I was at some time saying, "Why is our crew so large? Why can't people? I need just you know five people around these small, you know, these little kids. They might be intimidated." Um, this is something that uh, you know uh, I I I learned a lot of lessons with this film. Quite honestly, you know, I was working with my first union crew outside of uh, the film, the TV that I've done, um, and uh, I went into this not really communicating the proper way to to the below the line and 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 i i learned a lot by the third day we were about to get shut down quite honestly because they thought my methods were, were rogue and crazy and 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 so i had to start talking i had to say guys i know i'm throwing you curveballs but and and my director of photography alexis abe was really down for this i mean he's worked with carlos regatas and i you can imagine what his his sets are like and 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 we uh but as soon eventually everybody jumped on board they were they were ready to just to go and improvise behind the camera and 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 sometimes throw the schedule away as long as i was proving to production and my financiers that we were going to make it that we were going to get there and we never went OT. We went OT one night, why one hour, and it was because they didn't listen to me. That <laughs> but um, but so so I was showing I was a responsible film uh, director, and therefore eventually everybody started to understand my style and work the same way. Yeah. yeah. Now you well, this was a one or two cam show. One camera. 
oh no, no, there are, there is some ADR. And I mean, one of the scenes uh, that kind of goes to this sometimes documentary style way of filmmaking uh, is um, the scene with the cranes that a lot of people actually think might be one of the best scenes in the film. Um, the scene with the crane, we were about to, I wanted to shoot Willem interacting with the cranes and we were going to kind of workshop a scene right there one morning. It was, it was one of his last days, I believe, and we, we wanted to make sure we had enough of the Bobby character before he left. He was going on to another show. So we, um, these, little, these three cranes lived on the property. They would come up every morning and tap on the window of the lobby and get there, and the, and the real clerks of the, of the Magic Castle would come out and feed them Cheetos. <laughs> you know, they were, they were addicted to junk food. And uh, the morning of, we set up, my Steadicam artist is, is, is setting up his, his, his rig. And suddenly we all get emails and we look and it's like, do not shoot the cranes. This is, they are an endangered species. If anything goes wrong, we are going to, this is a federal crime. You're gonna, we, this will shut down, you know, our whole production. And I was like, I look over, and, um, the, the production offices are on the other side of the Magic Castle. I knew it was gonna take them a while to get to me. So I said, guys, roll camera, you know, Willem, go inside the lobby, come out and do something, man. I don't know what to tell you. So he comes out and he has that wonderful interaction with the, the cranes and he comes up with that line about, you know, uh, no harm, no foul. And my great Steadicam artist, Mike McGowan, who worked on Moonlight, you know, he, 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 he just did that really nice move into him. By, and then suddenly it was like, cut. All right, sorry, we're, yeah, you know, they made us move on, and that was the one take we got. Now, because it was so fast, we, uh, the sound wasn't even rolling. And we did, and, the and our sound, sound recordist didn't have, uh, he wasn't rolling until maybe uh, more than halfway through the shot. So the whole first half of the shot had to be ADR'd. And there were things like that, you know, throughout, the, throughout production. But yes. Now, you portray the Magic Castle as essentially a kind of welfare project place. Uh, I assume that's something of an exaggeration? No. No. Oh, no, no. I mean, like, it's mostly permanent residents? Not mostly. Probably 50 percent. Yeah. And at the time, we were in the middle of the summer, so it wasn't exactly tourist season there. I think tourist season is more around the holidays and stuff like that when it's less hot. So I think that they were, uh, it, there were, it wasn't that occupied. So we were okay. We were, per we were taking out rooms for our departments, et cetera. But there were residents there, and we did involve them. They, some of them were background action. We tried to, you know, employ them. They needed employment, so we would actually. Some of the 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 uh, the employees of Magic Castle actually worked for us a little bit, uh, PA work, etc. Yeah. yeah, I would be very interested to see uh, uh, what the reaction is from Magic Castle once people start seeing the film. Then they're going to show up there. And say, <laughs> we saw your film with the movie. Your we, place. Yeah, no, this was a concern. This is a, this was a concern of mine. And I and and but the the owner read our script. He, it was very clear what we were doing. And and I think he, I think that he he thinks and and I think it will. I actually think yeah, it will bring they'll, business. They'll, they'll get business, business from this. And 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 it won't be that honeymoon couple that get the, the wrong place. Uh, I think we have time for one more. If there's one more out there. Here, I'll repeat that. Is there anything you wanted to get that you didn't get? I, I, uh, 
let's see, that's hard to say because I, I just wanted more time to capture more of these, these little moments, you know, uh, um, Bobby just doing handyman work around the castle, the kids playing. Um, I, I wanted an extra few days to just sort of document that stuff and, and make up scenes and improvise, but we were so tight that I didn't really get to do that. We had to stick strictly to basically the script and the schedule. I was allowed to deviate, as, as I said, but, but unfortunately, I, I don't feel I ever got time to truly play, you know? And, and I think we, like, I used everything I shot of Willem, everything, except for the few um, scenes that were strictly adults in the, in, the, in the front lobby. You know, these are great scenes. Willem is wonderful. So are the other actors. They're very funny interactions. However, they just didn't belong in this film. But everything else, I basically, I used everything I shot of Willem. Because, so how many days was it? 35. Yeah. Well, that, in fact, in today's world is, I know. is, no, is, I is know. a luxury. Yeah. It is quite a luxury, but I asked for 60. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Okay. Sure. One more. Oh, no, no, no. We were always, from the very beginning, we knew they were running to Walt Disney World. We knew they were running to the castle. We didn't know exactly how we were going to shoot it and how literal it was going to be. For example, my you know my co-screenwriter wanted it very literal, and and I didn't. I wanted it more abstract, and, and you know, and 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 so um, and that's why our interpretation of the ending is a little bit different, and that's why I want the audience to bring their interpretation to it. Uh, but no, no, that was always something that was that's I do that with all my scripts. I'm very. I, the ending is one of the first things we actually come up with. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you. Okay. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. Don't forget, you can check out past episodes of The Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, be sure to subscribe to our podcast to stay up to date on the great discussions we have coming up. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please like, share, and leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Thanks again for listening, and have a great week. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.